Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. The rollout of the new free application for federal student aid, or FAFSA, has been rocky. And delay after glitch is creating even bigger headaches, with college deadlines looming. Ahead on Insight, we'll have some guidance on some of the biggest financial aid issues. Also, midwives in California are facing significant barriers in caring for low-income pregnancies that qualify for Medi-Cal insurance. We'll learn about how this is challenging access to pregnancy and postpartum care. Finally, Black History Month is going way beyond a textbook. We're going to head to Sacramento's Oak Park neighborhood and look at how one school is inspiring students to dream big during this month and beyond. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. What typically is an exciting time for college hopefuls has come with a big snag in financial aid. The rollout of the new FAFSA, or Free Application for Federal Student Aid, has created a lot of stress for many families. The rollout was meant to upgrade and streamline the process, but delays and glitches have prevented the Department of Education from processing a lot of applications on time. And all of this is really coming to a head. With college acceptance deadlines right around the corner, the window between knowing what students can afford to pay and selecting a school is shrinking. To make matters worse, some students can't even get their FAFSA applications in due to updated requirements for undocumented family members. Problem that have bubbled up to the very top. Politico this morning reported that the Government Accountability Office has opened investigations into the Biden administration's handling of the FAFSA rollout. John Waldrop is an analyst with the California Student Aid Commission, and he returns with an update on FAFSA, as well as what help is available for students and families. Welcome back. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me back. Well, John, let's just start off with how the California Student Aid Commission works with the Department of Education. Well, our goal is to help students across the state of California. And um, obviously, we, we have a partnership with everyone, and we're reliant on the federal government to make the changes, make the updates that need to happen in order for our students here in the state to apply. And unfortunately, it has been... Um, as you said, it's been a rocky rollout to, to the FAFSA. Yeah, you joined us not too long ago uh, about these problems with FAFSA. You know, weeks later, you're talking to us now. It seems like there are more issues and glitches. How is this going for, for you and the students and families that you're working to help? I mean, honestly, it's frustrating. We, um, we're doing a lot of things. We're reaching out. We, we're, we're working with our partners across the state. We're holding cash for college events. We're having... Um, online help and students can call the Student Aid Commission. We're working with CalSOAP. Um, we're working with uh, outreach centers at the at the universities, including Sac State, which has a great outreach center. And we're trying just to provide momentum for students to come in to these cash for college events and try to help them. The problem is, you know, we we can only do what we can do. And if there's still these remaining glitches in the application, um, it's frustrating for students and families uh, to you know to try to get through that process and a lot of them unfortunately while some of them are certainly able to get through and for some it's certainly working there are others that um, they're just in a holding pattern mm. until other things get resolved what are you learning about the major issues that applicants are facing because this was supposed to be a new and updated and streamlined rollout of FAFSA it was um, unfortunately that wasn't really the case. And so, you know, the challenge started with one, it was a very late release. Typically, fastest opens up on the beginning of uh, October. This year, it wasn't until the end of December. Had that been the only sort of challenge, I think we would have been okay. But it rolled out, and we immediately started to see that um, there were some challenges using the application and that not everyone, in fact, quite a few people were unsuccessful in trying to get through the application process. And there's there's glitches. There are you can go on to the uh, federal student aid website, and it will show you the out you know the the things that have been reported as problems. Some of those have been resolved. Sometimes there's a workaround, 
but but there's a big, there's a laundry list of things that are still not working. Hmm. When it comes to California students that are filing for for FAFSA for student aid, do you have an idea, a ballpark of how many students are being affected by this? I I don't know. I don't have a a, a number, frankly. That's um, you know nationwide. Typically nationwide, we get about 17 million FAFSA filers approximately, and I think right now we're at less than four million. Um, and I I would say it's likely that those numbers reflect kind of what's happening here in California as well, although I don't have exact numbers to give to you. Yeah, well, well, four million out of, you know, what was normally 17 million, that's a quarter of of what was expected nationwide. Yeah, the, the, the math isn't great. And so I, we're, we're feeling this, the same pain here in California. And from what I understand, college deadlines, you know, to accept a college of your choice, they're, they're coming up pretty quickly in, in May. So how are you advising students and families who are who are caught in this limbo right now? Well, the UCs and the CSUs did extend out their deadline um, a little bit in order to, to help families. We're going to see if that's enough. But you're right. And this is what is making it um, stressful for families as they try to navigate this process. And if they get stuck, they get stuck. And and unfortunately, the answer from um, FSA has been, you know, call, which is kind of a non-starter because, you know, we have people who are waiting three and four and five hours and not getting through. Sometimes they get through, but the issue still isn't resolved. Sometimes they get through and they and they get the help that they need, but that's a fairly small percentage. So I don't want to like, you know, uh, the sky is falling. It's not quite falling yet. But what we're doing is we're telling students, get as far as you can get, work with the colleges you're interested in attending, contact us and, you know, and get signed up for our, our emails so we can give you updates. Stay uh, connected to our social um, media. And, and that's really all we can do at this point. Hmm. You know, one of the more pressing recent problems that 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 arose that that became public is that when it comes to students who are U.S. citizens and they're filing for for FAFSA, but their parents are not citizens, they're undocumented. Um, there have been some challenges with them being able to complete the application. Can you kind of unpack that for us and what's going on? Yeah, so it's it's really this has really been impactful for mixed status families. So like you said, a student who's eligible to fill out the FAFSA, eligible to receive federal aid if they meet the criteria and they're not they can't do it because their mother or father does not have a social. And FAFSA has not fixed that problem. And so those students are really impacted because it's been a known issue for, you know, over a month. And there's there's no solution in sight. So these are the families that we're telling, you know, we tell the student, get as far as you can. We encourage the, the parent to email FAFSA so they get a case number. And then at least they have kind of a timestamp and a case number that they've tried to reach out for help. Um, if they need to email supporting documentation, they can do that. But we, we just haven't seen a lot of movement with that. And that's really troubling, especially in California, where we have more mixed status families than, than any other states. I can only imagine, you know, just in terms of the staffing that, that you normally have at the California Student Aid Commission, I mean, how has it been like over these past, you know, four plus weeks, you know, trying to help people guide them through a pretty arduous process that seems still uncertain uh, in terms of if it's going to be resolved? Well, it, it has been a little bit of a scramble. And we are very conscious of what families are going through, and it's been all hands on deck to work with these families and to help these families and to connect uh, students with people who can help them. Um, and like I said, I've been going out and doing a lot of cash for college events locally here in Sacramento. And families, you know, they just they want to feel like there's someone there who's doing what they can to help them. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And so we really would encourage um, any family who hasn't done so, try to attend a Cash for College event. They're free. They're typically at a high school or at a college. Reach out to the college that they're thinking about going to and say, hey, I'm having problems with an application. Do you have any support? Have you or your colleagues experienced anything like this before? Not like this, no. I mean, the FAFSA, you know, you have to remember that the, the FAFSA is a 40-year-old online program with millions of lines of code 
written in COBOL, which is the language that's older than I am, I think, or about as old. And uh, and it's it's been it's been glitchy. And it's I think maybe the issue was it was a little bit of a rush job at the end. I and I know the the federal government is heavily invested in, in trying to resolve this. They have heard. They have heard from the people and the colleges and the students and the families and from places like us. So I know they're doing what they can to try to try to fix this. But we've never really had this issue. We also had the California Dream Act for undocumented students, which rolled out at the same time. And fortunately, that's working perfectly. So for undocumented students who are filling out the California Dream Act, we want to encourage them to you know go ahead and do that. The FAFSA and the DREAM Act are two separate applications, and they can they can move forward with that right away. Great. We, we did get some questions from listeners who are going through it with, with, with their children. One of them was that, you know, they, they've been filling out FAFSA with their children since 2017, and they're used to filling it out in tandem, like the parent fills it out and then the student fills it out. Um, that second part didn't happen, and they were curious if a parent now, because it's supposed to be more streamlined, can they be the only one to submit information to FAFSA? Well, it's a little bit different. So um, FAFSA has sort of changed. So it's not parents anymore. It's contributors. And, you know, it's I joke with my kids. I say, hey, you're the world's greatest contributor. I say, hey, thanks. <laughs> Waiting for that mug. But they um, the challenge that we've seen is when parents try to they do their section and they sign it is one of the known problems and it le- and it, it blocks um, the application process from going through. So we recommend students start their portion, right? And then they name their contributor. They name the parent or parents who are going to add their information. If the family is, uh, you know, it's married parents and they file jointly, they only really have to list one parent. Or if the, if the parents are divorced or separated, they only have to list one parent. Um, with a few exceptions, but generally speaking, that's the rule. And parents have jumped in and they've tried to do their part, and then they've signed the application, and then the student goes in. They go, "I, we can't move forward in this," and it's it's a known glitch. Yeah. So that appears to what have ha- what what happened to this listener. So if that happened and they filled it out, it says it's complete. It's obviously not complete. What do you do in that situation? Again, I would email. I would get a case number. FAFSA has said that. Uh, in sometime in mid-March, which I'm taking to mean pro- literally March 15th, that they're going to open the application back up to make corrections. And that's also when they're supposed to start dispersing information to the colleges. Uh, we're going to wait and see if, if that's the case, but we're hopeful. But right now, again, uh, those families are just kind of in a wait-and-see mode. Um, they can continue to try to call. There's also a chat feature. Um, emailing is fairly straightforward and easy, and I think they just keep trying. In the interim, you know, since this is uncertain, and you mentioned that there are different types of financial aid that is available, um, you don't want to leave money on the table. So what should families and students be looking for in terms of financial aid? What other like state grants and, and, and other types of assistance is available right now? Well, generally speaking, FAFSA um, is one-stop shopping for most financial aid. That information reaches the college. The college puts together a financial aid package saying, okay, you're going to get Pell and Cal Grant and institutional aid and maybe work study and maybe this and maybe that. Um, the DREAM Act application is the same thing. They fill it out and they're they're able to get as much aid as they, as they can get. So that's a little bit of a challenge. There are other places you can start looking for outside aid, which I think is a good thing. So a website like fastweb.com, there's a number of them out there. Don't pay for anything. It has to be free. But there's a number of them out there that have um, merit scholarships and information on merit scholarships. You can contact the Student Aid Commission. We can give people that information. I, I think it's really important also that the students and the families communicate with the college that they intend to go to, or maybe the college they're already going to. Um, but for new students, you know, reach out to that financial aid office and say, this is what's going on with me. And 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 there may be some things that they can do, but the colleges certainly understand that students are a little bit mm-hmm. up against it right now. Finally, with all the experience that you have, and I know that this is this is a new situation that, that, that you and your colleagues are attending to, do you, what kind of impact do you think this could have on enrollment in the fall? We're going to wait and see. Um, I... I believe it could be in, impactful, you know, but we 
we think it's important that you know families continue to try. We're going to offer support so they can do that. We're going to get them out to these events that we're hosting, and uh, we want students to you know stay in that lane where they're 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 planning on going to college and they're you know that's the game plan. This everyone is in the same boat right now, so families shouldn't feel like you know we're in big trouble here. Everybody's kind of in big trouble here, and and colleges are aware of that. So I think we're going to see some things happen. I don't know what exactly, but everyone realizes that we, um, you know, the dates are kind of up against us a little bit. And we're just going to continue to offer support and tell students, you know, plan on going to college. Let's see if things get resolved. We still have time. California has a priority deadline of April 2nd. So, you know, you certainly still have time to apply. If you're going to a community college, that actually becomes September 2nd. Um, And there's no real deadline on the Pell Grant, per se. You can apply for the Pell anytime. It's just that you have to start matching the dates so that you're able to apply to the college and get the aid. John, thanks again for walking us through all the challenges. I know it's a busy one for you. It's busy. Thanks for having me. John Waldrop is an analyst with the California Student Aid Commission, walking us through the latest FAFSA challenges. Up next, midwives in California are facing big barriers in caring for low-income pregnancies that qualify for Medi-Cal insurance. We're going to learn about how this is challenging access to pregnancy and postpartum care. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. When pregnant, there are options when it comes to who you want to provide care through pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum. For low-risk pregnancies, licensed midwives have long been an alternative to doctors in a hospital. And research has credited community midwives for lower rates of C-sections and preterm deliveries. And their skills outside of a hospital setting can really be an advantage at a time when California is facing a wave of maternity ward closure within the past decade in largely low-income rural communities. But operating independently in the state is a challenge. A new report out of UC San Francisco found that licensed midwives face significant barriers in providing care to pregnant patients who receive Medi-Cal, which is for extremely low-income residents. Medi-Cal accounts for roughly 40 percent of all births statewide, and midwife care is included. But midwives face challenges from becoming Medi-Cal providers in the first place to receiving reimbursements for their care. Kristen Wong is a health reporter for Cal Matters and has been following the state's ongoing challenges in maternal care. She joins us along with Madeline Wisner, a licensed community midwife based in Sacramento who closed her business due to these challenges. Welcome and good afternoon. Thank you for making the time. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for having us. Kristen, you've joined us about maternal care in California. You know, it just recently in the last you know months or so, what led you to look into midwives and the care that they provide here in the state? Um, I, you know, was talking to to the research team at UC San Francisco, but really I also in in doing the original story that we spoke about earlier about labor and delivery units closing across the state, you know, was thinking about in these areas of the state where there is not a hospital-based option, like what what is left for the pe- the birthing people who are in those areas and that that got me interested in midwife care and you know their ability to provide really a wide range of services a lot of prenatal care and and things like that that patients tend to struggle with more when the hospital closes labor and de- delivery because those providers leave the area as well yeah and your reporting found that i think there's like a dozen counties that don't 
currently have a maternity ward in that county, which means people have to drive really long distances for prenatal appointments, not to mention delivery and postpartum care. Yeah, that's correct. Actually, Maddie and I were talking about this um, before we got on air um, about people driving driving hours because, you know, there are not specialists in the area. What stood out to you about the findings and the research from UCSF? It was just published last week. I think what stood out to me the most was really sort of how systematic the barriers were. And it's and it's systematic from both ends, both from um, midwives not being able to become Medi-Cal providers and then Medi-Cal patients also not being able to access a benefit that is guaranteed for them by law. Um, and it sort of starts with kind of like this uh, misalignment between like the application process to become um, a Medi-Cal provider in California and what midwives are allowed to do under their license. Um, This is something that the state has fixed at this point, but one of the things that was pointed out in the study was that previously there was a requirement in the medical application for midwives to say who their supervising physician is, but they are allowed to practice uh, independently in California. Right. Well, Madeline, that brings me to you. I mean, from the very beginning, what drew you to want to become a, a licensed midwife? Public radio. (laughs) True story. I was listening to Talk of the Nation, driving to my uh, grocery store job when I was 20. And there was a there was a feature on like distance learning and ways to access education without paying large amounts of money. Um, And so I heard about midwifery school then because most programs um, available to California students are a correspondence model or a distance model with a local teacher. And then I just couldn't stop thinking about it. It was um, perplexing to me that there weren't more midwives in my region, especially those taking Medi-Cal, especially that was right around the time of the Affordable Care Act going through. So, When it, I mean, you've helped hundreds of pregnant people, you know, in your time being a midwife, you know, for, for people who... Um, have never been pregnant, have never had to navigate this before. What draws someone to, to wanting the services of a midwife versus, you know, going to a hospital for for those standard appointments and care? The midwifery model of care really does emphasize continuity of care. So people see the same provider or a small group of providers. Visits tend to be longer with a licensed midwife than in a hospital setting. So visits with my clients are 30 minutes to an hour every single time. That gives us a lot of time to develop a safe rapport so that I can respond to them and what they need when they're laboring, when they're birthing, as well as after they give birth. It's much more face-to-face time. We Mm. do home visits, um, which most other providers aren't able to offer, as well as uh, laboring our own clients. So accompanying them for a longer period of time during the labor itself. I would just imagine being able to spend more time with 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 a patient. You get to really learn how individualized, you know, each pregnancy is and and no two are alike. Right, absolutely. And and many of our clients come to us because they've had experience with mainstream medicine or even with um, hospital-based midwifery care where they don't feel heard, they don't feel respected, um, or they receive undignified care. And so you would think that people seeking midwifery want a more natural option. But in in my client um, caseload, I would say the most common request was just like, can you be nice to me? Can you listen to what I have to say? Can you um, help me if I have a problem? Is there a way to contact you? Because people aren't even getting those basic Mm. human needs met. Yeah. And I would imagine, Kristen, like following your reporting about, you know, the closure of maternity wards within, you know, the last decade, give or take, that that type of personal care, individualized care, becomes even more difficult and more trying. I think so. And I think that the kind of care that Maddie's talking about, and she was um, kind enough to let me tag along to a home visit with one of her clients. And and it really is truly like uh, just a 
polar opposite of a doctor visit. Um, you know, she's able to spend a lot of time with the client and, and you know, really talk to them about how they're doing emotionally and physically and, and go through all of that. But I, I think that kind of connection in California particularly becomes a lot more important when we start to talk about um, racial and ethnic disparities for maternal and infant outcomes, because so much of the outcomes have been shown repeatedly through research that it has to do with unconscious bias and systematic racism within our sort of traditional medical model. And there's numbers to back that up. I mean, the maternal mortality rate has increased or become more challenging in California in recent years, right? Yeah, the maternal mortality rate is is currently at a decadal high in California. California has, you know, to its credit, done a lot of work to improve maternal mortality and morbidity, but it has for the past decade just been on a steady march upward. And of course, the entire time, African-American and Black women have fared the worst. Mm. Madeline, I mean, you really focus on pregnant people who receive Medi-Cal, you know, so that means that, you know, they qualify, they're they're low income. And so they, they have... The highest needs and, you know, arguably are under-resourced. You, and you had to, or you, you closed your your business last fall. I know that that is a painful moment. There's probably a lot to unpack. But when can you explain to, to people who don't walk through like a midwife as you, like what exactly happened? Sure. Yeah. Our, our birth center, Welcome Home Community Birth Center, is located in South Sacramento, um, at the, uh, two years ago, I my baby was one year old, and I came to the conclusion that with my family and contemplation with with my spouse that um, you know we didn't think that maternity care here was going to get better. It's clearly a well-oiled machine that runs on harming women and their babies, um, and deludes every participant in it into thinking that they are being helpful. Um, <laughs> I said it. So I said it. So we came to that conclusion that we, for for the safety of my family and for the safety of my child, for whom I want a future, we needed to leave the country and get healthcare somewhere where it is treated as a basic human right and not as um, something that can be commodified mm. in such a way. When reading the research from UCSF, I mean, they detail that midwives said that it was difficult to get one established as a Medi-Cal provider to begin with, but also get reimbursed for sure. the services. Did you face those barriers as well? Absolutely. The The landscape of Medi-Cal, particularly in, in Sacramento County, um, is Kafkaesque. It's, it's, a, it's a complex nightmare for any lay person going in wanting to navigate it. And um, in order to navigate it while being a healthcare provider who is on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for like 14 years now, it's, it's more than you can ask of one person. Midwives tend to do their own admin. Midwives tend to um, do all of their own billing or have a small billing practice. So the amount of administrative burden associated with navigating this Byzantine, you know, s- landscape is is really it's shocking. And I was the only one who felt game to do it. Um, I had a succession plan in place for the birth center, and at the end of the day, I would not wish it on any person that I like. Mm. And I had a team of midwives who I really, really love. So. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with CalMatters health reporter Kristen Wong and licensed midwife Madeline Wisner about the barriers to providing community midwife care to pregnant people that qualify for Medi-Cal. I mean, Kristen, you mentioned that state law like allows you to have midwife care, but there seems to be a disconnect in what the law allows and allowing midwives to actually thrive in, in their business and the care that they want to provide to people. You know, can you help explain why there's that disconnect, why it's so difficult for midwives like Madeline to operate? I think um, not just in California, but in the United States in general, we have operated primarily under a like physician physician first healthcare system. And the United States is a global outlier when it comes to 
um, how we deliver babies and how many midwives there are delivering babies in society. Um, so there's sort of like those like large philosophical and institutional barriers to begin with. Um, and then in California, too, I think there is, uh, you know, I think I think the state is trying to sort of address some of these needs. Um, and there has been a number of laws passed sort of, you know, increasing um, the benefits for Medi-Cal, you know, increasing postpartum benefits up to 12 months after birth, adding doulas as a benefit. So there's there have been efforts at the state level to sort of fill these gaps. But um, sometimes the on-the-ground reality is that bureaucracy moves at the speed that it moves. And in the meantime, people people are living their lives and having babies and they are still sort of like caught in this in this gap in the system. We've also had conversations on Insight about, you know, uh, closures of community hospitals or hospitals that are that operate pretty independently at risk of closing, you know, because now there's more of these network <laughs> of hospitals. And there are midwives within these healthcare systems as well. How are they different than a community licensed midwife? Sure. So Maddie might be able to um, shed some light on this as well. But so um, a lot of the midwives that tend to work within hospitals are certified nurse midwives. So they also, prior to getting midwife training, were nurses. Um, And that is, I think, you know, a good option. And it helps build out the team within um, a hospital's sort of like labor and delivery unit or birthing center. Um, But that's still like a facility-based service. Um, So when we're talking about these other communities that um, licensed community midwives like Maddie and others, how they practice is very different. They're doing home visits. They're going to where people are much more comfortable. And I think there's an important sort of like flip in power dynamics there. I've reported on this before with like... um, doctors and other providers who do street medicine for people who are unhoused, it's really, really important for building trust and getting people connected with the system to like do it on their turf and do it where they're comfortable because they've been sort of burned by the system so many times before. Mm. Madeline, I would imagine that experience of you providing home care is drastically different than, you know, going to a doctor's office. It's it's culturally very different. Um, it's logistically very different. Uh, the the institutional support that someone needs to take Medi-Cal, like a, a building full of <laughs> nurses to labor your patients for you, et cetera, do your billing for you, that's incompatible with this midwifery model of care as, as it's outlined in our scope right now. I think the thing to really um, understand about perceptions of midwifery in California is that there's been a very long campaign to undermine the ability of midwives. Um, it's it's concerted effort to undermine the scope, the training, the availability, and the reimbursement of midwives um, over 100 years now. So when we're looking at what we can do, it's, it's more about what we can <laughs> undo as far as who is in charge of our health system and who is calling the shots. Even with Medi-Cal, all of the licensed midwife benefits have to go by medical consultants who have no training in midwifery. And I think that that's one of the main barriers that we're up against now, even with all of the progress we've made with Medi-Cal, is that at the end of the line, we're being regulated by physicians still. Kristen, do you have an idea how many midwives there are like Madeline across the state that that want to operate and, and be Medi-Cal providers? Um, yeah. So the Department of Healthcare Services sent me some numbers and it's about 75 licensed community midwives across the state. Um, and that's accepting Medi-Cal. And, th- and those are midwives that I don't know if they are currently <laughs> currently doing births or not. That's just the number that the state has. There are far more, there, um, about a thousand certified nurse midwives. And again, those are midwives that largely work in hospitals. Um, but even then, I mean, if you think about, you know, a state of 40 million people, that's not very many providers. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, there's also a lot of research about the benefits of midwife care for low-risk pregnancies. I mean, if you can just share some of the research that, that you reported on. 
Sure. So, I mean, there there has been a lot of research about, um, you know, low-risk pregnancies. It I think you had mentioned in your opener that it reduces the rate of preterm births. It reduces the use of narcotics during pregnancy. It reduces C, the rates of C-section. Um, there are much higher like self-reports of having a satisfactory birth experience overall. Um, and in large national studies looking at um, midwife-attended births, the negative outcomes are also pretty rare. They're very similar to the negative outcomes rate that you would see in a hospital-based birth. Finally, Madeline, I mean, if someone is pregnant or wants to be pregnant and is listening to this, what do you hope they take away from this conversation? Midwifery care is the gold standard for maternity care. Um, If it feels like it's right for you, it probably is. And there's probably a way to work with a midwife in your pregnancy. Um, You can see what midwives are available geographically close to you by visiting calmidwives.org. You can also um, look us all up on the medical board website by county and see who the licensed midwives are in your county. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Kristen, as always, thank you for your reporting. Always great to be here. That is CalMatters health reporter Kristen Wong and licensed midwife Madeline Wisner. And they are discussing the barriers to providing community midwife care to pregnant people that qualify for Medi-Cal. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Some Sacramento classrooms are taking Black History Month to a whole other level, going beyond simply opening a textbook and taking this time to reflect on the sacrifices, experiences, and contributions of Black Americans with the goal of inspiring students to dream big about their own futures and their place in history. From art sessions to cooking demonstrations, business fairs, this educational mindset stretches beyond just one month out of the year. Cap Radio education reporter Shrishti Prabha got a look at the curriculum at Sacramento Charter High School in Oak Park, and they join us along with teacher Cassandra Jennings, who is also the president and CEO of St. Hope, which runs Sac High. Good afternoon. Thank you. Good to be here. Good afternoon, Vicki. All right, Trishy, I know the first step, you are an education reporter focused on K-12 through in Sacramento, but what led you to Sac High in Oak Park? So this week... You know, I got to go, or last week, I got to go to a classroom at Sac High because Cassandra Jennings is a force of nature and we're always hearing about (laughs) all of the amazing work that's going on. So I actually went into the classroom and the students that day were choosing a black or Latin figure whose iconic image they were going to recreate through photography and it was called A Moment in Time. The person teaching the class also happened to be Cassandra Jennings, so here's a little audio from that. Okay, he chose Huey P. Newton, Black Panther's party leader. And anybody know about the connection it has with St. Hope? Right next to Esther's Park, the name of that building is the Huey P. Newton building. It was dedicated in 2016 because the offices there of Fred Heastan was the lawyer for the Panther Party for Huey Newton. So the history even goes further than what you read in the books. We got our own history right here in Oak Park, right? 
All right, Cassandra, I'm going to ask you for a history lesson as well. But first off, I didn't realize you teach at Sakai also. Well, I should clarify that I volunteer to teach an advisory class, which is the fun class. So we get to do things like this and also make sure the students are up on their grades and fulfilling their requirements. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I would love to learn more about the history of the Black Panther Party here in Sacramento, specifically in Oak Park. Yes, yes. And they, their headquarters was right there in Oak Park. Um, they had a lot of um, things on the wall at the AKA building that was there. And in 2016, we did dedicate that building to Huey P. Newton. And we just want to make sure that the young people see the context of things, not only on the history, but how it's impacting our present. And as you said, how they can dream and um, aspire to take Take it to the next level of this journey of freedom and success. Yeah. You know, I would imagine, I just know that you have been at this for decades when it comes to the deep roots of black history in Oak Park and Sacramento, preserving that history for future generations. I mean, that is easier said than done. It is no small feat. What goes into into doing all of this? Well, it's a lot of input, a lot of planning, and a lot of intentionality. And St. Hope has made it part of their mission to really uplift the community and the people through arts and culture, through education, and through economic development. And it has to be at every point and every and reaching out to all communities and the community that it reflects in order to make sure that it that it's rightly portrayed and that it lives on. And Trisha, you actually got to see how it's shaping students uh, and how they are taking in learning about Black History Month. What does this type of education mean to them? Yeah, I think kind of piggybacking off of what Cassandra said, you have these educators, organizers, and activists. And as someone that's, you know, working in the school system, these are the types of people that I end up interacting with that change the cultural climate of Sacramento, especially these black educators and organizers and activists, right? And I would argue that the strong black presence that exists here is because of the black leaders in the community who remind the generations after generations what existed in the space before them. So I would actually say that Jennings is one of these people, right? Right. Like Cassandra has been here. She's been doing all this work, whether it was the Phoenix Parks Project or revitalizing South Sacramento or working on housing redevelopment in Oak Park, which preserves all this cultural history. I mean, her work has been to uh, mitigate racial inequity. So I think that having people like them also teach Mm -hmm. that history is super significant. Well, let's meet some of the students who want to dream big. (laughs) Who who did you meet, Trishy? Well, I got to meet this, the senior, Justice Spears, and she was profound in her understanding of why history matters to her as some, someone who wants to be a future congresswoman. It just feels like a necessity, like I need to know because how do I keep going in the future without knowing my past? And I want to become a future leader. Yeah, that's just wonderful. And it's so powerful. You know, you have to look to the past to see how it shapes you for today and how you can shape future generations. I mean, Cassandra, this education that for Black History Month, I mean, we're just we're focusing on this month. I mean, it's not just a textbook. You know, there's a lot of other activities and curriculum that are wrapped around not only inside a classroom, but outside of a classroom. Can you walk us through just kind of the thoughtfulness that that went into this? Right. And this year, we really want to focus on the arts and culture. And we wanted the students to really get engaged in it. So everything was really very participatory, uh, really requiring critical thinking and sometimes imagination. And so the a moment in history was one where we say, you take a historical figure and you reenact that by taking a picture of what's happening today. And then you can also submit a short video to say what you were thinking. And so it it just doesn't allow you to say, I know that person. I know Angela Davis. I know Huey P. Newton. But then you start thinking, who's the Huey P. Newton of today? And what does that look like? Or who's the Ruby Bridges of today? And what else do we need to be doing? Because while we're looking at history, we want to let the students know you are history, mm-hmm. too. You are making history and you can be a part of it.
I'll say also with the hands-on with the chef, with um, paint and play, uh, we have some uh, theater that we're going to have interactive things. We have at the elementary school, we're having reading. So we're actually having authors and community leaders come and read all day to the young people. So all of that is about engaging people so they'll remember it forever. Yeah, and engagement is key. I mean, it really hits the point home that school and class is so much more than a classroom. You know, it's part of the community and you need that level of engagement for it to stick. And then you can make it personal and apply it to your own life. Shristi, when you were like following students along, seeing how this is impacting them, I mean, this is a multi-layered approach to education. What stood out to you about how they engaged with the lesson material? Well, I think the big thing, which Cassandra already pointed out, was that they're doing they're going beyond the books. Right. You're talking about art in the process of learning this history, reinterpreting what you might have once known, maybe connecting with some of those people. I'm assuming a lot of them are choosing people that they feel they resonate with. Right. Um, And so, you know, I want to see what the outcomes are. It's also a very accessible project. You can do it on your phone, right? You can just take a photo, snapshot, selfie, whatever you want. And it seems like kids are on their phones all the time (laughs) these days. It's a great way to to engage them. And I want to see what, you know, what kind of comes out of the project. That's my, I'm excited for that. Yeah, for better or for worse, you know, but so, so make it positive, right? If they're going to be on their phones, like make it, make it um, impactful. When you were talking to to Justice, the the high school senior, um, what stood out to you about their responses and how they were interacting with with the project. Yeah, talking to Justice was just a pleasure. She understood the assignment, as the kids say, and her insights felt well beyond her, like, 17-year-old age. And so this is what she had to say. I think it really connects from old times to modern times and taking a picture. You had to really put yourself in the shoes to make sure that you're capturing the essence that somebody left. And did you know before you were handed the list of people who you wanted to choose? I did. I knew, I didn't know that she was going to be on the list, but I knew, like, I'm going to choose Shirley Chisholm because, like, she's an important, influential person in my life. And just for those who might not know, uh, Shirley Chisholm is the first black woman to have a seat in Congress, so that's a powerful person for her, for her to choose, especially if she wants to be a congresswoman, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Shristi, what stood out to you about how this builds confidence in students? Oh, you can just hear the benefits from justice herself. I feel like we don't have really a lot of black representatives in government. And so when I think of higher power and all that, a lot of us get scared. And a lot of people, when I tell them that I want to do it, they're like, are you serious for real? And I'm like, yeah, this is our government. I want to get into the ropes. I want to learn the secrets. I want to know how to survive here because it's been really hard. Yeah, part of seeing that representation is that. And then part of it is being taught by people like Cassandra, like I noted earlier, who have been doing this work locally. It was really nice to see her and notice, like, oh, my gosh, um, she's a black woman who is CEO of St. Hope. And I was able to talk to her. She has an older spirit, which I do really appreciate because she reminds me of, like, my grandma and, like, learning from her in history. Cassandra, how does that make you feel? I am old, but I'm proud of it. (laughs) I like that you're her grandma. (laughs) And she's probably right. That's probably about my age. But, you know, I think we want to pass down history. And and the reason that we want to talk about it with them, because they may have their own take on it. And I know there was another gentleman in my class, young man, who was really sort of upset with one of the leaders that we had, Cabernet, who, you know, with the 40 because he was a 49er fan and I didn't think he was going to pick him but he did pick him and so this really gets them to engage in their heroes or people they have concerns with because of other things and then try to put themselves in their shoes and then figure out what shoes they want to wear. Humanize them. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So I don't mind being old if they're listening, and it's the wisdom that we have to share, and certainly we're listening to them too. Overall, I mean, we just heard from one student, Justice Spears, who's wonderful, but how have students and also staff, how have they been responding to the type of opportunities and and different types of education that St. Hope is offering? 
I think they are loving it. This is the partnership we have between the different nonprofits that we have at St. Hope to make sure that uh, gaps are filled and that um, people have only not only access, but access to success. And we believe that if we can provide different kinds of exposure and access to students and opportunities, then they can really succeed in anything they want to do. So people are open. Uh, some of the adults are participating in it and coming up with some really creative things. And then when I was doing it, I thought, hmm, this isn't as easy as I thought it was. But boy, did it get me thinking. How did your own experience as a youth, as a student, shape what you want students today to experience? Well, it it really enlightens me to say that you are always learning. And uh, coming up in the segregated South, uh, North Carolina, um, and then moving to Maryland, I had varying experiences. I always, um, my parents were educators, so I was uh, really educated, but exposure was also important. And then questioning, and then learning. And I think what we want the kids today, because they have a lot more tools than my parents had, than I had as a grandmother for some, you know. <laughs> and uh, we want to make sure that they have those tools available to them, the people that struggled, that sacrificed, that gave up a lot for us to get here, uh, there's still a lot of work to do, and then they can help for the next generation. All right, Trisha, I'm going to leave it with you in the last 30 seconds or so that we have. In the spirit of learning, what did you learn when you were there? I mean, what didn't I learn? You've heard her talk. I was learning the whole time. I didn't know about the building we discussed at the very beginning, Huey P. Newton's building, the list of uh people the students could choose from. One of them was Benjamin Banneker, so I went and looked him up after because I didn't know very much about him. Um, And he's a mathematician, for those of you Mm -hmm. don't know. And then, you know, obviously talking to the young people, they astound me. Their awareness of their own history, justice was incredible. So I learned a lot. (laughs) Well, Shristi, thanks for taking the trip. And Cassandra, as always, thank you for coming to Insight. It's always nice to see you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vicki. Cassandra Jennings is the president and CEO of St. Hope, and Trishti Prabha is Cap Radio's Sacramento education reporter. And they're talking about how Black History Month is being taught this month and every month in Oak Park classrooms in Sacramento. That is it for Insight Today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can send us an email at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producer Sarit Lashinsky and managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Chris Feltz. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.